Welcome back, everybody, to the Not Funny Guys Presents Why, exploring the philosophy, rhetoric, and cultural impact of the MCU. I am your host, Dr. John, and this week I am joined once again by my Claflin colleague, Dr. Catherine Silva. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me again. Excited to be here. Yes. All right. Reminder, everybody, this pod is an extension of our main podcast, The Not Funny Guys Presents Off the Reels, where we explore the films and hear... We try to explore some of the ideas that stick out and have some discussion about them, starting with the question, why? This is episode 22, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. And so as normal, we start with our comic book origins. We have a few characters, uh, some who've been around and some who are I'm going to introduce for the first time. But let's start with Namor. Now, Namor, if you don't know, folks, who I think did, I love the way they adapted him in the film, but he was created by Bill Everett and first appeared actually in Motion Picture Funnies Weekly number one, which apparently was created but never circulated by Timely Comics, now Marvel Comics. So his actual first appearance in the comic books that were distributed was Marvel Comics number one in 1939. Uh, he is, of course, one of the three characters that was a staple of Timely Comics at the time. And that era, which was the gold, sometimes people consider the golden age, which was Captain America, Human Torch, and Namor, the Submariner. Uh, and of course, during World War II, they all end up being part of a team called the Invaders. Um, Namor is considered an anti-hero. Uh, he is also a mutant in the comic books, a uh, son of a human sea captain and an Atlantean princess. Uh, he's been a sort of an ally and antagonist for the Fantastic Four. He's worked with the Avengers, the Defenders, the X-Men, and of course, the Illuminati. Now, one character who has been on the scene before and mainly in the Disney television, Disney Plus television series, but this is her first appearance in a film, is Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, played by the brilliant Julie Louise Dreyfus in the film. She was originally, the character was created by Jim Steranko and first appeared in Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. feature that was in Strange Tales, number 159, in 1967. She has been, of course, a love interest for Fury and a spy. Um, and at one point, she actually was became Madame Hydra, so she also became an antagonist. Uh, we also have Namora and Atuma, who are the two figures. They don't, I don't think they actually really ever say Atuma's name in the film, but he's the big guy who takes on Okoye several times. Uh, and Namora is his, the female. And of course, Ma Namora is a comic. They're both comic book characters. She first appeared in Marvel Mystery Comics number 82 in 1947. So she's been around for a while. She was created by Ken Bald and Sky Shores. Uh, she is Namor's cousin, and like Namor, she is also the uh, spawn child of an Atlantean and a human together. And um, she is also more, have been depicted more as a hero than Namor has always been. And then there is a Tuma, who in the comic books is actually a supervillain and antagonist of Namor. First appeared in Fantastic Four number 33 in 1964, created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. He is a full-blooded Atlantean and warlord. And then, of course, I want to bring attention. We've seen them before, but they become much more prominent characters in this film, which is Io and Anika, both members of the Dora Milaje. And even though we've seen the Dora Milaje before, uh, it's worth noting that they are royal guards to the Black Panther and the throne. Um, now, in the comic books, Io was actually falsely accused of murder, uh, was eventually broken out of prison, and became one of the Midnight Angels, which she does in the film. Uh, and the Dora Milaje, along with Io themselves, actually first appeared in Black Panther number one in 1998, created by Christopher Priest and Mark uh, Texiera. I'm probably pronouncing that name. Yeah. 
Um, Anika, also a member of the Dora Milaje, first appeared in Black Panther number one, 1998, was actually a leader, a member of the leader of the Dora Milaje at one point, was stripped of her uh, rank and exiled, also becoming a Midnight Angel with Io. And finally, we have Riri Williams, who I know we talked about this in the main pod. Some people said, oh, we didn't really necessarily need her character. No, I wanted her character. This was awesome. Uh, in the comic books, she is known, of course, as Ironheart and a superhero created by Brian Michael Bendez and Mike Diarodato. Uh, She first appeared in Invincible Iron Man number seven in 2016. So she's a more recent invention. Um, she is a 15-year-old engineering student from Chicago. She's a certified genius attending MIT, which they did keep that in the film, uh, where she designs and builds her own Iron Man armor. After some exploits, she actually gains the attention of Tony Stark. When they meet, he actually endorses her as a superhero. So that's also super cool. In fact, she kind of mentor he's he kind of mentors her. Whereas in the film version, we sort of see her being more of a fan of Iron Man. Of course, going to MIT, his alma mater. Now, of course, mm -hmm. in the MCU, they make Namora and Atuna far less prominent major figures. And of course, they've changed up Namor's origin a little bit so that he's more of a Mayan descent. And rather than being Atlantis, their home is Talacon, uh, which I know they actually did that primarily to make sure they distinguish him from the Aquaman franchise at DC, but I love it. Um, and then, of course, we do have a Julie Louise Dreyfus is De La Fontaine, who's actually been in a film before. She appeared in the 1998 David Hasselhoff as Nick Fury film, Nick Fury Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which we covered on the podcast, played by Lisa Wren. All right, that out of the way. So topics of discussion. Before I go in, I want to note that uh, this film felt very strong and I something I discussed on the main pod about sort of a meta engagement with the audience because as the film they are mourning T'Challa we as the audience are mourning Chadwick Boseman and I think it yeah. sort of heightens out the message that the story is trying to tell and so I want to bring up two particular elements um besides the element of the morning, because I do think that was fascinating I talked a lot about that and we can talk about some here but I wanted to talk about the extension carrying over from Black Panther about Afrofuturism. And also the second thing I want to talk about is the idea of the struggles of indigenous peoples, which was very much put on uh, full prominence in this film. So to start us off with the Afrofuturism, there was an article about the rhetoric of Wakanda forever, Afrofuturism in Black Panther uh, by Pulia Tiwari. States the term, of course, was coined in 1994 by Mike Dreary. And it is a technique of black speculate, speculative fiction that uses science fiction and futuristic imagery to imagine a future for black people rooted in the African diaspora. Uh, Tyweri notes that Black Panther borrows heavily from the from authentic African tradition to create the wonderful amalgamation of African culture that is uh, the country of Wakanda. It is reimagining of a future of a history that never really panned out. It is the story of a nation untouched by colonialism and slavery, which therefore has been successful in preserving its cultural practices. And then, of course, with the indigenous people, I noted there was an article by Juan Chirero, uh, with opinion that states Wakanda Forever did a great job of handling the indigenous peoples, which I, I do agree, even though I want to talk with you more about that. Mm -hmm. Um uh, they, they were talking, he specifically mentioned here, there's a speaking where the, the Spanish priest, when they come to bury Namor's mother, curses him. And that's where he draws his name as the the, the child without love, Namor. 
the filmmakers don't intend for viewers to concur with the course of the priest's hatred, like Killmonger in the first Black Panther. Namor is a cautionary tale against embracing the colonizer's amoral tactics. But he isn't evil. He's driven by trauma and a noble desire to protect his people. Uh, and of course, in the ending, um, rather than Shuri destroying Namor, she, like a colonizer would, she actually recognizes him as an equal um, in a common struggle, which I think is a really good way of doing that. And speaking of that real quickly, side note, um, I just saw the Marvels. Um, I will not spoil it for anybody, but uh, it does, interestingly enough, touch on the Kree needing to survive on their home world, and they end up going to other worlds and stealing their resources in order to live. And boy, was that not just like a red flag of like, oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. So um, talking about this idea, so looking at both the concepts above astrofuturism and issues faced by uh, depictions of indigenous peoples versus the outside world, how do we feel these issues are represented in the film? And how do we reflect? How does that reflect back on us as the audience? That's what I want to kind of dig into. Oh, that's so terrific! That's really rich. So there's so many um, amazing pieces within this film in itself, right? So visually, we can kind of think back um, historically to the space. We can kind of reimagine um, what indigenous space spaces look like pre-colonization, but also. What does it look like when they have been removed from it? So what practices do they keep and how do they keep moving around, moving with technology? Because sometimes we situate indigenous or African spaces as um, in one moment in time and never moving. But in fact, they are embracing technology. They are moving with new ideas. They are um, embracing um, ways of being that are modern, but different and rooted in who they are. I think Wakanda Forever really does highlight that throughout the film. Well, you know, there's something interesting. This is something I saw in the real world and I can't remember. I apologize. I was watching a YouTube video. This guy who's very interested in engineering went to an African country where they had embraced uh, a method of reaching out and sending uh, blood, uh, needed blood to hospitals in difficult locations where there was not good roading. And they had developed a glide system using remote um, solar power drones that they launched with the cargo. And it would fly to the site using GPS coordinates, airdrop the, the needed blood supply, and then return. And I just thought... Oh. That's amazing that that's that's this these people who are adapt using technology to adapt to their environment in a way that I don't even think we on, in the developed Western world would even think about. And the Not guy went there who was just amazed at this system. He was like, this is a great he loves that kind of stuff. So he was really happy to go and see it and he gets to watch them do it. And I was like, what you were just saying there was this idea that, yeah, it made the technology that they're embracing looks a little different. Because it's adapting yeah. to a different situation, a different environment. Because when I look at Wakanda, it's like I see the way that they, even though they have technology, you see this blending of sort mm -hmm. of a, what looks like something could be very traditional with something futuristic. So it doesn't look like what Western culture. It's not a Western idea implanted and dropped on this culture. This is a culture that is designed to look like what it would be like if they developed themselves rather than have an outsider's perspective you know, dropped yeah. in on them. And then, you know, with Talokan, it's very much, it gets this vibe, like what if the Mayan culture had been continued 
It just moves right. underwater. And so it looks very different, but it's adapting to its environment. Exactly. It's so interesting because when you're looking at the adapting of the environment, also they're holding on to their values, right? Mm -hmm. So they are wonder, understanding who they are as a people, but saying, okay, what do I need to do next? And so oftentimes we think that there has to be an adaption of Western culture because we're so colonized. But what Wakanda Forever shows us is that that is actually not in fact true. And then even looking at the dissension and difficulty between these two um, groups that even people who've been um, fighting colonization don't necessarily always agree and get along either. So that there is that um, element there. And then when does that happen? One of the moments where people decide, well, we may not be friends, but we can be allies. Mm -hmm. I think that is also really helpful in this film to look, think about. Well, I think about this way. So if I was looking at this from a sort of Spanish conquistador idea, when they interpret, when they meet the Aztecs, they don't clash and then come to a, a mutual alliance. The conquistadors conquer it and remove it. And when right. Namor's, when the Atlanta, when the Talacan and Wakanda clash, they meet and then they part as equals in a sense. Right. They don't, one does not assume the other, which I would be that. a colonizing type idea. Exactly, exactly. And I think that that really highlights what colonialism is, because I think a lot of people are, especially in our current political climate, wondering what what is colonialism? And it's imposing yourself on another culture, not just saying that we had conflict and that we're going to be equals and we're going to figure out how to um, have compromise, how we're going to be able to live in peace together, work together. Colonization is like, let's stamp you out, let's push you out, let's push out your ideas, your language, your culture. And uh, this is this film really shows that that does not need to be right that people can work together and then not colonize each other in that we can have a lot of conflict with that so i thought that was really what i really took away from the film you know it makes me as we're having this discussion i was thinking about and this is a little bit divergent but it still has to do with comic books um grant morrison in his book super gods he talks about people who come to comic books and he talks he classifies them as two different ways the first way he calls them the missionary, which means mm -hmm. they, which I would guess in this case, we would consider colonization because in a way the missionary comes to the medium of comic books and he wants to bend it to tell right. whatever kind of story he wants to tell. Whereas mm -hmm. he notes the other type of person is an anthropologist. They immerse themselves and seek to understand how it works and what it's about and then work from within. And I think that's interesting because even though, I mean, he wrote that book and he's talking about something completely different, that always kept coming back to me when I was thinking about this film and this idea about how we, as um, you know, an outsider to the situation, how do we approach something? Do we approach it and want to make it conform to what we think, or do we approach it and allow ourselves to appreciate what it is and come into a sense of harmony with it? You know, Exactly. And what can we learn from it, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't know. And yes. understanding that, and they have very specific values in places that they're coming from, and mm -hmm. so how do we, how do we learn from those values, right? So yes, I, I mean, I think I think that's one of the tragedies, I guess, of Chadwick Boseman's death. Is I think it would have been interesting to see that extension of that outreach program Wakanda was trying to do, because right. the lesson they took away from the first film was that their isolation 
was maybe working for them, but there were people who, um, you know, other Wakandans, African American, African American people, people who had left in the diaspora who were suffering, who they could help, and so maybe they needed to do more, you know, and but not, to, but not, you know, rather than doing it the way I guess Killmonger would have been going about it, they were like, well, maybe we can try another way, you know, and I think that comes back to what Shuri is wrestling with in a sense with her own grief in this film, and when she goes into the the uh the the ancestral plane she meets killmonger the first time which i mm -hmm. thought wow okay that was that also, yeah i'm sorry go ahead no go ahead no no i was finished uh, i think that also speaks to um what are religious and cultural practices in other areas right so part of a western ideology of death is like you're done Right. There's mm -hmm. no more. Either there's no connection or there's a heaven, but you don't really see or speak to that person. But if you think about, for example, Yoruba, Ifa tradition or other traditions within the African context, that there, there's a direct connection with ancestors. You still speak to ancestors. You still see ancestors. They come to you in your sleep. And so that is not just uh, Afrofuturism, but also part of the African tradition of what people believe. And so if you look at indigenous um religious practices, of course she was going to still have that relationship with uh, Chadwick Boseman, uh, with uh, the Black Panther T'Challa, because of course he's still there in the ancestral plane. He's still advising her. She just doesn't get to speak to him every day in the physical context, mm -hmm. but she still can reach out to him and talk to him. And I that's a recurring theme in this series, which I love that they keep going back to the idea of the ancestors. Um, that but she resisted. She resisted the idea that that was a true thing. She was very um, uh, secular in her beliefs, but that she sort of had to learn to accept another side of herself. Exactly. And she did, right? So she had to, right? The, the ancestors were like, oh, no, girl. <laughs> we're here. Well, it's we like the way even Baku was so uh, put off by her in the first film. And yet in this one, he's kind of coming to a greater acceptance with her. And I mean, he's almost like seeing like he's taking Chadwick He's taken T'Challa's place in a lot of ways. He made promises and everything. And I'm I'm going to be honest. We talked about this on the main pod. We love M'Baku. The way he chews up a scene, we're like, oh, yes, this he is great. Oh, my gosh. He is. He's probably and my now that we don't have uh, Michael B. Jordan. I mean, he is our pretty much our favorite, like, character. Like, the guy, all of us on the pod were like, no, we like M'Baku. Yeah, like, he, more, more. We were talking about giving him his own show. We're like, can we get this guy's own show or something? You know, it's like, we'd love to see that. And I think also because she so embraces technology, I think that sometimes people think that when you embrace technology, that you have to eschew all ancient practices, that ancient practices are a technology. So it's just a different type of technology. So I think that her coming to it, whether reluctantly um, and slowly, but still, I think that also speaks to a lot of young people, right? So oftentimes we want to let go of the past and we want to we want to do some new stuff and we want to forget everything everybody else did before us. But no, you still have to embrace your past in order to move forward. So I think she's a really good lesson for that. Yes. And I mean, I thought it was so fascinating the way that um, characters like Shuri, they're learning and adapting and evolving but when we flash back to the CIA headquarters, um, one after the French, which I thought was really rich that the French of all people um, trying to conduct a raid to steal. I mean, it's like um, if we get the Spanish involved here at any point, we're going to be hitting like a trifecta here of like 
major colonial forces here. I'm like, okay, so we're the French in, okay. And then later, and I love the fact that they thwarted that and then brought their own people back to them as like, don't try it. You know, it's like, we, we don't have to roll over for you. We literally, and then later on when they're the CIA headquarters, they talk about what's their plan. And it's like destabilizing. I'm like, geez, you know, it's like you guys only have one. It's like you, you look at a situation and you only have one answer for it. Right. That was very telling. It's like only only one, one answer. And your one answer is um, destroy it. Or right. like the fact that when the uh, Talakans are carrying and like they just want to keep blaming the Wakandans. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like exactly. And I think again it points to like how we see the CIA operate, right? As the stick about the nineteen eighties and all the banana republic. So there's yes. like a lot of history there. Um COINTELPRO, the FBI, like just so yeah. many things. Just just destroy it. Just destroy it. Let's just go in there and mess it up and not have a real game plan and for no re- other reason but it's them. Right. It's not yeah. because it's sort of deep seated ideological belief that's really in truth, but it's all about power. So it's like it's like they have a hammer and the only thing you know how to do is break things. Yes. Like, you know, you could build something with that, too. You know, it's like, oh, they're like choice. Set. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, it's so yeah, bad. I was like, I, I thought it was very it was very indicting. But at the same point, I'm like going, yeah, no, that's about that's about right. I mean, yeah, I, I, I thought so it was. Yeah, I think well, it's they, really bold. Yes. No, I think I think I think the West needs to embrace some of its shame, you know. And I think <laughs> this movie kind of kicks that dirt right up in the face. And I'm like, nah, we had it coming, you know. Right. Like I'm one of those people who goes like, no, you're right. I mean, I my, my bachelor's is in history, and okay. so my my understanding of things, looking back at things, and understanding the the patterns of of you know human events, and I'm like. No, no, you, 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 you had that coming. It's like, you kind of deserved that, you know. I'm like, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's so interesting because I grew up in the 80s. I was born in the 70s, and um, I remember Iran Contra affair with Ollie North and all of that. And so I see so much of that now in films, and including this one, with even looking at the CIA, what's going on, and how do we see, um uh the idea of arms race how do we see the idea of colonialism what is the role of government in that what is clandestine and you can see this even in this film so when i was watching i was reminding myself of like those trials i watched as a teenager and writing about my school papers in high school (laughs) well you know i i thought it was fascinating to me because when i think about it and i think about the way this movie reflects it back at us it's like there's a dumb lazy way of doing things which is the you know destabilize it and we'll go clean up that mess and we'll take over and then there is like the challenge to do something authentic to do something that requires hard work you know Mm -hmm. because even with you know the situation with talicon and wakanda that's that that wasn't easy it won't be easy going forward but it's like when you see that when you're able to see something there's some group of people as really being an equal rather than some sort of inferior right you have to realize that you have to treat them like an you know we want to be really petulant about it the the american government is acting like children rather than adults you know and Na- shiri and namor are the only two adults operating mm-hmm. in some ways in this film you know i mean when you look at de la fontaine and you know she's in charge of the cia and it's like she doesn't care. She's just like, oh, whatever, whatever is easy. I mean, 
And the fact that her and Everett Ross were married, I just could not see that one at all. I was like, okay, that was a surprise. <laughs> I was like, that's your ex-wife? Okay, great. <laughs> Yeah, that's why they're exes. <laughs> yeah, Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman continues to be great. Um, I I love him as a you know, and I love the fact that Shuri has his. He's just colonizer to her. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> She's like, no, I don't trust you. And I'm like, let's see what you do. Let's yeah. see how this goes. I like. I think. I think about the first film when when he when he wakes up, and he comes up and she he scares her. And she's like, don't do that, colonizer. And I'm like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the other thing I noted, and this is actually something I'm doing some research on because I, I think I want to write a paper about this. I'm actually going to try and present at the pop culture convention this year. Something I've noticed about phase four, all the films of phase four and all the television series going back to uh, WandaVision and going, of course, through Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. There is a thread running through all of these of grief. Mm -hmm. of processing grief of dealing with grief because it's what did we lose in the blip and what i find even more fascinating is that it phase four had a very mixed response to it and i don't think it was because of the quality i think it was because we as a human people we don't necessarily like dealing with grief it's not a preference we don't like dealing but this whole thing and most of what i saw in phase four and what i started to realize was most of it is about grief and then when you add on the fact that phase four took place during COVID, right. what does that, what does that do? How does we, how do we act? And so I'm, I'm working on some research around that because I think that's really fascinating to revisit uh, right. some of this stuff and then look at it from that lens. Um, yeah. I mean, there's so much, I mean, even as an audience to be able to go back and to watch this and, and we're in South Carolina. So mm -hmm. we are the home of Chadwick Boseman. Um, many of our students are from the same space here at Claflin University um, that he grew up in. Uh, we have colleagues, our dean is actually from the same town. And oh, yeah. so the hometown hero and to have um, Washington be so brilliant and, um, and then know that he has passed away, not just in the film, but in life and that we did not get a chance to see this young, bright star go the distance um, is heartbreaking. And it's very yeah. hard for us as an audience to really wrap our heads around that. I think it made it a very emotional film to watch. I feel like yeah. many of us were very, very emotional throughout the, the piece. I mean, we are and, on the same journey as Shuri in this film. I mean, yeah. she's us. She's yeah, a stand-in for us. us in a lot of ways. I mean, she's mourning T'Challa, we're mourning Chadwick. And I mean, I, I made lots of notes about that. And I even said that at one point when we, we brought up the fact that they don't actually say how T'Challa dies, like they don't right. specifically. And I said, and I, and I told it, my colleagues on the, on the podcast, I said, that's on purpose because that, that, that space between where there's something mm -hmm. unknown, they are putting on the, on the screen. They of course know what they're thinking, but for us, that's left blank so that we look at it and we probably think cancer. Chadwick right that's exactly. that's a place for us as the audience you know I even brought up the fact that in comic books and Scott McCloud talks about this the space between panels um which is sometimes called the gutter which is really not a great space but it's a place where we as a reader are a participant in the story and we are the ones that draw connections between the panels we are right. the ones who where there's a space in between whatever gap is there it's up to us to fill in and I think when that one of the situations I took particular note of is when they talk about him dying and they don't reveal 
They left right. that blank so that we as the audience are participating and putting into that space, whatever mm-hmm. it is we think. And if some of us are probably also thinking, I know I was about Chadwick dying, you know, dying right. of cancer. And that's what I know I put into that space. And I bet other people did something very similar. So too, I watched it with friend and same thing. I also think it's interesting that, you know, you can't, if you put in cancer, then you have to start thinking about, you have all of this technology. Yeah. It is easy to do all these things, but you cannot fight death, right? Yeah. And you cannot fight death. And ha- cancer is still very, very difficult. Um, well, even on comic books, Captain, the original Captain Marvel way back in the day died of cancer mm-hmm. and he was fighting the universe and he beat Thanos. You know, but right. cancer got it. And it's- allies, right. I have a friend of mine who's battling cancer right now. And so um, I have family members um, pass away from it. Um, and so, so many of us have that also personal relationship with it mm-hmm. that I think we can, we, I think that's the question that a lot of us ask um, worldwide is we can do all these things. We can put people, <laughs> we can make these amazing films. We can, and being Afrofuturism, we can think about these uh, amazing futures, but there's still death in that. And that, how do we deal with it when, I think that's why uh, Suri has so much, ha- yes. has a hard time too, is that she's like, I can't fix him. I can't fix She's this. exactly what I you can't. just said. We have all this technology. She's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't save him. And so she's right. walking around with that survivor's guilt. Right. You know, the that, guilt why him, anger. not why him, not me, you know. Right. She's going through this 12 stages of grief right there in front of us. And we can mm-hmm. see it um, throughout the film. And it's really quite beautiful to watch. Um I, I love relate. well, there's something that brought to my attention, something that I didn't notice, and that was I think my co-host Casey brought up right before Namor shows up when they're burning the garments and mm-hmm. Queen Ramonda says, did you feel that breeze? And she speaks about how that was T'Challa. Right. At the very end of the film, when Shuri burns the, the morning robes, and she right. t- after she's met his son, right. there's a moment where you f- right. she feels Tears. the breeze. And I'm like, right there, there's acceptance. I'm like, wow. That's, that is, yeah. It's a full circle. And more, man, those tears coming. I yeah. mean, I think that. Even we were in an audience with this little boy and uh, my friend, man, grown man, and we're all like in tears because we're like, oh, we could, we could feel that, um, that moment. I think Ryan Coogler and the team did a beautiful job of really making sure that the audience was honored in that as well in Chadwick's mm-hmm. um, um, idea, but also us as humans, right? So these are all telling us things about ourselves, and I feel like that. Um, although we do not want that death, but to deal with it in such a, a wonderful way really points to what comic books and these films can do for us as well. Yeah. And that's kind of, like I said, that's kind of what I'm trying to dig into with some of my thoughts about rewatching phase four is how do we right. in a real world sense react and deal with that? Because I think rewatching a lot of phase four recently, I've come to really Look, I mean, I don't I didn't buy into the criticism. I've always been a fan, but I saw a lot of people who were very critical of phase four. And then I looked back and I watched it again. I started noticing the grief element. I'm like, what if there's something there? What if there is something about that process that we're unintentionally maybe hostile towards? And so that's kind of a little bit of where I'm kind of going in some of that stuff is rewatching phase four, thinking about these elements, you know, the particularly the stages of grief. You know, because I ended up doing our podcast of why we talked about WandaVision. We specifically talked about 
the stages of grief and reflection to her because everything she does in that series very mm -hmm. much is highly centered on that. But then when we, that was where the idea came from because when I was doing that with my friend Casey as my wingman on that one, we actually started looking at all the other phase fours and we're going, there's something here. And like, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to take this. I'm going to run with it. So okay. hopefully I'll get to, I'm, I'm hoping to workshop it. And then like, that's why I want to do the pop culture is that's where I'm going to kind of test run some of that maybe next spring. And then maybe hopefully turn that into a paper. So I think so. I think that's a really great way, a thing to talk about. I think especially post COVID-19 with so many of us losing, may not be a person, but maybe a person, maybe our health. People we knew. Yeah. All sorts of things that people we've gone through it and we are definitely different people. We can see that reflected in our students alone. And so we know that there's a pre COVID and a post COVID. And I think that this, uh, a paper on that would maybe help us. Think well, about I think, that. I think that's part of the problem. I think is that we don't we don't want to process. We want to forget it, right? Because I've seen I've right. I mean I just looking at the very tenor of some of the ways that I've seen people in the larger world reacting is like they want to forget that it happened. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. I think that that's that's because we're still in denial. You we're know, very it's, much in a denial phase. We have not gotten anywhere near acceptance. We are still. Yes denial we haven't got to the angry part we got a little bit of anger on and off but there's still a long way to go through that <laughs> and you know and I, this is something i did i pro i wrote a series of stories to process out some of my own grief on a situation in my own life and i turned it into a fictional story and i was talking to somebody and we were talking about the stages of grief and it was something that was noted is that you don't just progress through them in one direction you can go back and forth you can actually get stuck in them exactly. and i'm like and it really <laughs> Yeah, I was like, okay, so like you may pass a stage like anger, but that's not a meaning that you won't come back to it, right? You know? exactly. exactly. Or that you might skip it and end up back at it later. And I'm like, and so the stories I ended up writing were all centered around one of the stages, and it mm -hmm. actually did a right. It did a great job of helping me process some stuff out on my own. But I was like, this, you know, being creative and everything. But at the same time, it made me think about that sort of fluid back and forth nature of it. And so that's something I'm going to probably incorporate into that presentation as well right and i think that this film definitely did that because you see loneliness you see depression mm -hmm. you see um all of it within it so i think um he was definitely trying to address this even his own depression of losing his friends so um i think uh watching this film again it's i reminded myself well i was reminded of you know how much we can do with technology but how much we're still having a human experience all the time right which uh, first and foremost human beings and so with even whatever was around us we're still having these experiences all of us so it's very interesting i thought it was interesting to me was and this was something i think i brought up but it wasn't until okoye is actually stripped of her rank that she actually begins the process because she let herself be locked into her duty. And when she actually gets that taken away from her, that's when I think she actually really began to actually process anything because she had locked herself into her job in a sense, as you know, a way of avoiding perhaps mm -hmm. processing. So. So true. So true. All right. Well, that was really good. I think that was a great talk. So everybody, we want to hear from you. Tell us your thoughts. Uh, you can write us at notfunnyguys.offthereels at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Instagram at not underscore funny underscore guys underscore presents. Over on Twitter, I will never call it X for as long as it's still there. We do have something called at not funny guys pod. 
at Blue Sky, we are the Not Funny Guys. So until next week, folks, keep asking questions and stay strange. Until next time.